At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. History the Cold War podcast, friends. We have a special interview episode for you today with Yeast from the Windy Museum for Cold War History out of Southern California here in Los Angeles. So maybe Yeast, if you want to quickly introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the museum. Sure. My name is Yeast Siegel, and up to 2014, I used to work as a professor of cultural history at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. But then in September 2014, I came to, the, to Los Angeles to work as the chief curator of this amazing museum, the Wende Museum, which is a German word. It means uh, change or transition. It's uh, the term used to describe the events leading up to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it was founded in 2002 by the present director, Justin Jempel. It's a huge collection of materials, uh, from politics and culture to everyday life, focusing on the socialist countries, the East Bloc countries, the Soviet Union during the Cold War. The collection ranges from artworks, artifacts, archives, books, films, etc. We have a collection of more than 100,000 unique items, and we try to use them uh, not only in the sense of uh, showcasing them, but also in making experimental exhibitions and programs around it, to not only teach people about Cold War history, but also to try to show different layers of history and make our uh, displays a, bit, a little bit thought-provoking. And can you share with us some of the recent exhibitions you've had at the museum? Yeah, sure. So we just opened in a new museum building in November last year, and we have two opening exhibitions. Uh, the smaller one is called The Russians, and it is a display of photographs, actually Polaroid photographs, by New York-based uh, photographer Nathan Farb. He was the host of an uh, exhibition organized by the United States Information Agency in 1977 in Novosibirsk, in Siberia. As such, he took pictures of visitors to that exhibition, and they are pretty amazing. It's a wide variety of people with all their different tastes, clothing, self-presentation, and the point he wanted to make there is that the Cold War enemy also consists of individuals with their own uh, character traits. And he brings that point uh, forward in a very convincing and beautiful way. And then our main exhibition is called Cold War Spaces. So it's about the spatial characteristics of the Cold War. And we have uh, divided this uh, exhibition in eight different sections. So you have parts of the exhibition dealing with utopian space, with border space, outer space, which is the space race, private and public space, changing space, secret space, etc. And all those sections present different aspects of history that interact with each other, but also tell 
the very sometimes very complex and paradoxical story of um, uh, socialist life and work. Can you uh, share with us a little bit about your TED Talk that we watched about symbolism and the Cold War? Yeah, absolutely. A few years I did a TEDx Fulbright talk about the politics of images, where Cold War visual history is one part of that presentation. So the main thought behind uh, the talk is that I wanted to show that images are never seen and interpreted in isolation, but all are always part of a tradition of comparable images, and we read meaning uh, into them by comparing new images with existing images. So you, I understand that you actually have a book that you wrote about Cold War and imagery. Can you share with our audience a little bit about your book? Sure, absolutely. So the book is called uh, Art and Politics Between Purity and Propaganda. And it's actually not uh, exclusively about the Cold War, although the Cold War is the central chapter in it. But it also deals with a relation between art and politics in First World War uh, during the Mexican Revolution, in the Third Reich during the Cultural Revolution and beyond in China. There is a, a chapter on Kara Walker. There is a chapter on the on how people in uh, former Soviet republics dealt with their national monuments. So it's broader than just the Cold War. But I think many of the topics that relate art and politics come together in that Cold War chapter, and that's why I think it's still relevant also uh, as a motivator of the rest of the essays in this book. How did you decide on the specific themes of the book? Uh, well, actually, the book was a result of several years of courses I gave first at Utrecht University and then as a guest professor at UCLA about art and politics, and I looked for different cases, different relations between art and politics in different situations of uh, political chaos, political rupture, uh, where uh, in some cases uh, artistic agency was very important, for instance Diego Rivera in Mexico or Kara Walker in the United States, other cases where there was a totalitarian regime like the Third Reich or the Stalinist phase of the Soviet Union and how people were on the one hand, very much directed in what they could and could not express, but then on the other hand, there are still so many paradoxes and so many possibilities uh, actually for creative people to uh, express themselves and be critical at the same time. So I was very much interested in that tension between censorship and control on the one hand, and then the always surprising ability by individual people and artists to circumvent those directions and uh, do whatever they wanted to do and found important to do. Was there a specific individual or is it more of a series of individuals that decided on you know, what was art in the Soviet Union or did, did leaders like Saw and other leaders take part in it like it was in the Third Reich or, or how did that work out? That's a great question. It's a very broad question. I think first I have to explain that although there are all these uh, stereotypes about Nazi art, the situation in the Third Reich was actually very complicated. For instance, there were uh, Nazi officials and Goebbels, uh, the Minister of Propaganda, was one of them who very much liked modern art, which was considered to be degenerate. He was forced at a certain point by Hitler and others to let go of his preferences for modern art. And then on the same time, at, his, at the same time, there were 
famous modern artist like the expressionist Emil Nolde, who was a very convinced uh, National Socialist Party member from a very early date onwards. And even when his work was uh, featured massively at the famous or infamous exhibition Degenerate Art, he kept trying to be recognized as an official uh, National Socialist painter. So it's not always a very... Uh, linear this uh, story and the same holds true for the Soviet Union in the beginning just after the uh, Russian Revolution of 1917 modern art was the preferred art style to uh, advertise the new socialist or communist regime and it was only in the course of the 1920s and especially later under Stalin in the 1930s that modern art became, uh, came to be associated with bourgeois decadence and that Art had to be uplifting, recognizable for the masses, and point towards an idealized socialist future. Um, it's not uh, like the Third Reich where Adolf Hitler was a painter himself who very much projected his personal tastes on the art world, uh, but there were uh, clear directives in the Soviet Union how, uh, especially under Stalin, I must say, how art should look like, but those directives were normally described in very abstract terms, which again left some space for artists to actually experiment a little bit about the borders, what was allowed and what was not allowed. And under Stalin's successor Khrushchev, uh, there was this period of relative relaxation, reform, and you see really an, an explosion, so to speak, of new experiments in art, of artistic freedoms that were not to be seen uh, earlier. There still was this system of control and censorship in place, but sometimes actually the censor took the side of the uh, artist and worked with him in order to sign up something as a state uh, commission that was actually a private initiative from the artist. Okay, so I know when we first entered the museum, uh, you have an exhibit around facial recognition and uh, East German border guards. And I thought that was interesting because um, you were talking about how they actually felt that people were better with recognizing faces at the time versus computers of the period. Can you share right. a little bit with our audience about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, we have this quite unique um, um, archive from the border guards the East German border guards at uh, Checkpoint Charlie. And part of that archive uh, consists of their training materials for facial recognition. Uh, there was a very um, uh, intense training period, a three-year period before the East German guard, border guards were even allowed to handle their first uh, passports. And um, uh, there is a tragic comic detail to this uh, story, which is that the head of those border, border guards was asked by the East German government to put together an exhibition to um, show to all the border guards across the country how it was done properly. And this exhibition opened in the last week of October 1989, just uh, two weeks before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So they didn't enjoy that for a very long time. But then, interestingly, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, this same uh, uh, person, the head of the border guards, government in reunified Germany and they told him first of all uh, that is not very appropriate because you have been working for the GDR but also what you have been doing um, in an analog way we can do much better with computers 
And uh, this person always said, well, I don't believe that because uh, computers can be very easily um, tricked by things like makeup, people getting older, uh, shades in, uh, on faces and things like that. Whereas humans tend to have a more synthetic approach to facial analysis. I think uh, for the time uh, of the early 1990s, it might actually have been true. I'm not so sure if it is still the case, because uh, in the meantime, computers have become uh, much more sophisticated, and I think they actually do a better job now. Maybe yeah. as a little yeah, aside, uh, we, did, we did this exhibition about uh, facial recognition at the Wyndham Museum, and that took us uh, into contact with uh, the computer computer vision lab of Rutgers University and we are now uh, doing a project together where they uh, develop software to read the emotional expression on the faces of our more than 100 Lenin busts to see if there are significant differences between the countries where they were produced in time periods. I know much of the museum's collection kind of focuses on you know visual art um, but we're, we're, you know, while we were there, you also have a collection of movies and recordings along with clothing or fashion of the period. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, actually the majority of uh, items in the museum are uh, objects from everyday life, and that varies from household items to furniture, clothing. We also have quite significant collections of flags and banners, commemorative plates, uh, little sculptures, things like that, next to artwork. And then, as you mentioned, we have this extensive collection of uh, films, not so much feature films, but mostly East German educational films, animations, and home movies. And, uh, well, they're all uh, quite interesting, but uh, maybe one word about the home movies. We have some very special collections there. We, for instance, have the home movies from one family who lived uh, near Dresden over a period of uh, 30 years, which means that you can actually follow the kids growing up. You can see the changes in uh, fashion, in clothing. You can see the different approaches after uh, a few decades, uh, how uh, children interact with their parents. So in terms of um, social history or almost anthropology, that is a very fascinating source we have. Yeah, in terms of speaking about Germany and kind of personal items, I think one of the interesting items you have at the museum are the personal effects of Eric Conacher, the last right. leader of East Germany. Can you share a little bit with us on how the museum came to obtain the collection and a little bit about the makeup of the collection? Yeah, that's actually an interesting uh, story. So Erich Honecker was the state leader in East Germany between 1971 and October 1989. And after the wall came down, the Berlin Wall, in 1992 to be uh, exact, he uh, was put in prison because of uh, uh, the order, or he uh, charged with giving the order to uh, shoot people who tried to flee the country when the GDR was still um, there. And then when he was in prison, uh, he appeared to be very sick. He had liver cancer and uh, therefore he was allowed to leave the country and he moved to Chile with his family where he died two years later in 1994. But before he died, he wrote his testament and in his testament he stipulated that his personal archives should not go to a German institution. The reason being that he was afraid, and probably rightly so, in some German institutions his archives might be 
politicized. He wasn't very sure that uh, people would treat his um, materials with due uh, objectivity and respect. And that is why, uh, through the lawyer of uh, Erich Honecker's widow, Margot Honecker, uh, we received part of his archives. Uh, specifically, uh, for instance, the handwritten version of his autobiography, but also the personal notes he took during his time in prison in Berlin. And, uh, yeah, it, it's a very unique, of course, and very important historical source and uh, uh, we have international uh, researchers coming from everywhere to have a look at these materials. Then we also have some uh, materials from Honecker's estate, such as his uh, hunting outfit and hunting rifle. And we have a collection of state gifts presented to Erich Honecker. And among them are some very interesting uh, and weird pieces. For instance, we have a gilded sword which was donated to him by uh, Saddam Hussein. So, yeah... All in all, it's quite a special collection. Yeah, very interesting stuff. I remember going through it. Um, you know, I, I know we also talked a little bit about, you know, Western art versus communist art during the time, even though the museum doesn't specifically focus on that. Mostly, I know that you guys focus on Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Um, but were there any kind of, you know, common theme um, in art between the West and the communist bloc nations during that time of the Cold War? You know, that's, that's a very interesting uh, question, and actually I think it deserves a little bit of a layered answer because there are several aspects to that. Uh, I would say on, at first sight there is this very clear distinction between Western art or typical Western art, which is modern art, and then the socialist, realist, almost photographic propaganda, propagandist art um, in the East Bloc countries. But uh, at second view, things tend to be a little bit more complex. Um, first of all, because uh, uh, after the period of Stalin, uh, the art worlds in most of the East Bloc countries, and including the Soviet Union, went through a phase of uh, reform and uh, careful uh, liberalism. Um, also... Interesting, I think, is that there are actually uh, um, correspondences between Eastern and Western art. If you look at the early Cold War years in the United States, you had those uh, socially engaged artists like Ben Sean and many others who um, uh, focused on uh, American workers, uh, sometimes had an anti-capitalist uh, approach, uh, which very well corresponds to uh, the anti-Western propaganda in the Soviet Union. But then on the other hand, uh, and especially if you look at artistic style, the realist style of uh, Soviet painting had its uh, very clear mirror in conservative uh, American art. Think of Norman Rockwell, which uh, in terms of style could have been easily confused with the socialist realist uh, artwork. So there are correspondences, and uh, apart from artistic style, style, I would say there is also a very interesting correspondence in terms of uh, the politicization of style. And that is because in both the United States and the Soviet Union, art was approached as a means of political action. In the Soviet Union, uh, on an international level for international conferences, etc., 
Modern artists who had a communist conviction, like, for instance, Picasso, were honored and even awarded Stalin prizes, peace prizes for their uh, great communist uh, convictions. Whereas within the Soviet Union itself, this modern art, and Picasso especially, was considered a bourgeois decadent artist, a typical product of uh, capitalism. And the same schizophrenia, if you will, uh, can also be seen in the United States, where on the one hand, modern art was supported. Uh, the State Department, for instance, was instrumental in uh, helping to organize traveling exhibitions of modern American art in Western Europe to make the point that uh, American art was progressive and liberal and open. Whereas at the same time, conservatives, also conservative politicians in the United States, including the FBI, were actually after modern painters because they were considered to be communist and uh, a threat to uh, American society. So I think on different levels there are very intriguing correspondences next to the very obvious differences. So I know most of the museum, again, addresses, you know, art from Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, um, but in terms of, you know, art from communist China and other Asian communist states like North Korea, um, did they have many of the same themes and styles as art in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union? Well, I think it depends on uh, what period you're talking about. Uh, so I would say there is a strong correspondence between North Korean art, uh, which uh, doesn't show much uh, change over the years, uh, Chinese art, especially from the late uh, period under Mao, the Cultural Revolution, so mid-1960s to mid-1970s, and art under Stalin. So what they all have in common is this idea that art is not something to just um, uh, please aesthetically, but has a social task, a social meaning to bring forward the future state of socialist society. You can always uh, recognize the same kind of topics, the glorious fatherland, the great leader, uh, celebration of productivity, the uh, enormous engagement and idealism of uh, youth groups, etc. And they are all painted uh, or in posters reproduced in the same style, this very glowy, almost photographic uh, realism. But then, of course, um, uh, nothing ever st stays the same in uh, China after the Cultural Revolution and after Mao's uh, death. Things started to change uh, very rapidly, and the Chinese arts market, uh, as you might know, is now very, very um, modern-oriented. But also in the Soviet Union after Stalin, uh, much more variation in uh, art was possible, and uh, this very... I would say this very flat propagandistic approach to art was hardly to be seen again. Um, so we know, you know, art throughout human history has you know, always had a complicated relationship with state institutions, you know, dating back to almost ancient Egypt. You think of like Ramses or Napoleon with his, you know, famous paintings or propaganda posters of the world wars. In your opinion, you know, what is the difference between they are in the Cold War and some of those other eras? Yeah, that's a very, very broad uh, question. First of all, I think uh, maybe you should uh, uh, distinguish be roughly between the periods that almost all art was commissioned, so until, say, the 
uh, 18th century, although there are a few exceptions, such as the Dutch 17th century, but generally speaking, the 18th century, uh, almost all art was commissioned, and that, mean, that means that uh, there was no room, so to speak, for the artist to follow his own convictions in uh, representing uh, uh, what he had to paint. Uh, I mean, uh, of course, uh, there were great artists who had their individual style and sometimes also quite original approaches to their subject matter, but it was just not possible to be very critical against your um, um, commissioners or things like that. That, of course, changes in uh, the 18th, especially the 19th century, when um, politics uh, get a much broader basis in society, and people get uh, voting rights, are more politically active, and that is a period when artists also start to uh, feel this uh, responsibility to speak out and sometimes mold themselves as a kind of uh, social prophets to lead the way of society, which is a phenomenon that was unheard of in earlier centuries. So I think that is a, a very important change, and I would argue that uh, the situation during the Cold War uh, doesn't differ that fundamentally from what started in the 19th century, except for the fact that you see something interesting, and it is this correspondence, and uh, I already uh, indicated it a little bit when talking about the art politics of the Soviet Union and the United States, this correspondence or association between artistic style on the one hand and political ideology on the other. So during the Cold War there was this idea that modern art, Western art, was capitalist and uh, socialist realism belonged to the East Bloc countries. Uh, whether that was uh, right or not. And uh, this idea of this very close association between style and um, ideology was relatively new. Not completely new, I think it has its roots uh, already in the period of the Third Reich, where you had this watershed, so to speak, between uh, um, degenerate modern art in the, in the eyes of the Nazis and the real Heimat uh, version, the nationalist or folkish art, on the other hand, which was also not so much a, a matter of content as a matter of style. Modern art was considered degenerate. But uh, you see that uh, association uh, between style and politics having a very strong emphasis during the Cold War as well. You know, it often seems to me that the line between art and propaganda is, is often kind of blurry, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, do you think that art can be political or ideological without becoming propagandistic? Well, I would say that depends a little bit on how you define uh, propagandistic. Uh, it's clear that art can be very political, but uh, not necessarily supportive of uh, state propaganda. I think of uh, the... Uh, collages of John Hartfield uh, during the Third Reich, for instance, or someone like Barbara Kruger, or many contemporary artists, actually, who uh, are politically engaged. I don't know if you would call that propaganda, because, of course, it's not in line with uh, um, the forces in power. And also, I would say that art can be very political without being uh, very uh, mono. Perspectival. Uh, uh, for instance, you have Picasso's Guernica, 
which is a very complex uh, painting. It's a direct response to the uh, uh, Nazi bombing of the Basque city of Guernica. And it has a very clear um, uh, pacifist statement, but at the same time, it's a very, very complex artwork. And I think that uh, that combination is very intriguing and very well possible. But if you say that every form of political engagement is a form of propaganda, well, then I don't know. <laughs> Again, <laughs> it's a matter of definition, I, I guess. Yeah. I know much of the Cold War was obviously, you know, fought behind the scenes with right. the Soviets and the Americans with, you know, proxy groups and, you know, front organizations. Are you familiar with any, you know, interesting art projects that were funded or supported um, by either the CIA or the KGB, you know, projects or campaigns that kind of push their ideology during the period of the Cold War? Well, yes, from the Soviet side, I would say any um, exhibition, international conference, or whatever was organized, uh, was organized uh, under very strict uh, state control. I don't know if that was under the responsibility of the KGB, but it was for sure very strictly um, orchestrated. There were some traveling exhibitions also from the Soviet Union to the West where very carefully planned as uh, propagandistic statements, maybe uh, less well-known and uh, more uh, surprising in a sense is the fact that it also went the other way. There were traveling exhibitions uh, going from the United States uh, and Western Europe to the Soviet bloc. For instance, a, f a famous example is the 1959 exchange exhibitions in New York and Moscow, where both countries showcased uh, their culture. And part of those exhibitions uh, were actually painting exhibitions where the United States made a point of showcasing some very modern abstract expressionist artwork to confront the Soviet visitors with this freedom of spirit in the United States. Uh, some of these exhibitions were supported uh, by the State Department and the United States Information Agency, possibly also by the CIA. There's one um, uh, famous or notorious book, uh, according to whom you asked, by Francis Stoner Saunders, who made the point that the CIA, based on circumstantial evidence, must have been involved in these uh, traveling exhibitions, but it is highly contested. And my point is that I think it is not important whether the CIA was involved, because the striking thing here is that the State Department was involved and uh, pushed these exhibitions with a very clear political agenda. It was not that they were all completely blown away by the artistic quality of the painters, necessarily. Mm -hmm. And then, again, interestingly, and uh, I already hinted at that, these um, uh, initiatives were not uncontested because there was this strong uh, conservative lobby in uh, the Senate and also uh, within the, the FBI who uh, considered these modern artworks to be uh, treacherous and communist in character and wanted to mm. stop these exhibitions from happening. But uh, there were political campaigns behind the scenes uh, for sure. By the way, Very speaking about the CIA, yeah. uh, the involvement in terms of art exhibitions might be contested, but it is uncontested that the CIA supported, uh, for instance, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was a group of moderately left-wing artists and intellectuals in Western Europe, and they supported them to 
because they were very uh, active in promoting freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and uh, they hoped that by supporting them, uh, organizations like the Congress for uh, Cultural Freedom would actually take a hard stance against the totalitarianism of the East Bloc. I know that uh, one of the other interesting items we saw there was that I know you, you, if I remember correctly, guys have some counterculture kind of art, you know, at the museum, and in terms of art that wasn't sponsored either by a state or some kind of corporate entity on the, on the Western side. Do you see any common themes between the counterculture uh, art that was developed in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and that of uh, counterculture art that also came out, you know, during the same period in the West and maybe the United States specifically? Yeah, right. Uh, uh, we have uh, quite an interesting collection of counterculture from different uh, countries. I can give you a few examples. We have a quite unique collection of more than 200 paintings from 38 uh, uh, Moscow-based artists from the period of Glasnost and Perestroika, the period of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, reforms in the late 1980s and early 1990s. That uh, reference poster um, um, ideas, but instead of glorifying the state and communism, they are very ironic and very bleak. So they are very interesting works. But then um, uh, most of um, what we consider counterculture in Eastern Europe was not necessarily directly political in character. It just wanted to create a kind of uh, <clears throat> free space, a kind of private universe. And in doing so, there are many references to Western art. You, we have a quite extensive collection of counterculture from East Germany. We are about to open an exhibition on Hungarian art and culture in collaboration with the Getty Research Institute in May, where we showcase uh, um, comparable countercultural artwork from uh, Hungary, mostly from uh, the collection of the GRI. And then uh, a parallel exhibition we open in May is about uh, Soviet hippie culture. And that is quite uh, interesting. Many people don't even know that uh, something like Soviet hippie culture existed, but it was quite widespread. And we are working together with, there with uh, Juliane, first a historian from Bristol University who spent the last 10 years of her life doing research into these uh, cultures. And we started to support her research by acquiring these materials. And there is a clear correspondence there between uh, Soviet hippie culture and American hippie culture. They were the clear source of inspiration. But then because the context was so different, the items in the Soviet Union get a completely different meaning. Uh, yeah. Of course, in, a, in such a politicized context as under state communism, uh, uh, trying to uh, do it your own way is already a political statement. You can say that's also true, of course, for the hippies from San Francisco, but I think it's even more true uh, for the context uh, in the Soviet Union. What was happening with art developing in the rest of the world, especially for those nations in the non-aligned movement? Did they try to take art in a different direction versus what was kind of happening in the U.S. and Soviet Union? As it is already pretty hard uh, uh, to say that all art during the Cold War was uh, directly inspired by the Cold War. Of course, art has its own traditions, etc. It becomes even more uh, blurry when you look at 
the rest of the world. Uh, I mean, uh, there are so many influences on art. It's local culture, it's religion, uh, it's personal contacts uh, and convictions uh, of the artists. If you look at art in Brazil, for instance, or in India, which are two of the important non-aligned uh, countries, you see a completely different uh, art world. And there might be some references to Western art and some references to socialist realism as well, but that didn't define these art worlds. Uh, maybe I can give one interesting example, which is Yugoslavia, which was part of the non-aligned uh, uh, movement, although it was, of course, uh, in the middle of Europe. Uh, it's considered an East Bloc country because it was yes. a socialist state, but it was not part of the Warsaw Pact. It um, uh, had a quite independent uh, course during the Cold War. And you see that reflected in the Yugoslav art scene where you can find both socialist uh, realism and modern art as fairly well accepted uh, art forms. They just coexisted there and nobody saw a specific problem. Uh, also, Yugoslavia was open to artistic influences from the West. Joseph Beuys visited uh, Belgrade to give workshops, etc. And that was all perfectly fine. So I think it's very hard to give a very general answer there. Uh, you know, I guess one other question uh, that I'm sure some of our listeners would have is that we have a number of grad students that listen to our podcast. Um, and if they wanted to gain access to your archival materials or, you know, they wanted to work with your museum, what would be the best process for them to kind of go about doing that? You know, who should they reach out to or I mean, what did that process look like? Right. Well, actually, we always love to have uh, researchers and students and other people who are interested uh, coming to the museum and uh, work with our collections. We are very open to that. So the way to go is uh, send an email to uh, research at whenthemuseum.org or even uh, easier info at whenthemuseum.org and we'll take it from there. We are always happy to uh, honor such uh, requests if we can. I remember we talked a little bit about kind of the end of the Cold War and, you know, Fukuyama's kind of end of history and that period. Was there, especially in Eastern Europe and, you know, even uh, the Soviet Union or Russia, the former states of the Soviet Union, what would you say is kind of a legacy of those monuments and, you know, of the Cold War in general in regards to how monuments or art is built or created today in those societies? I know that's a very high-level question, but if you, you yeah. had any feelings around that. Okay, no, but it's, it's actually a very interesting point, I think. First of all, when you mentioned Fukuyama, his idea, of course, was that world history of political and social systems is, is a kind of... Um, was a process of uh, survival of the fittest. So uh, people were following a path of trial and error. And in the end, in the 20th century, only three uh, basic uh, systems uh, were still in existing, uh, fascism, communism, and uh, Western-style liberalism. And then he makes the point that in 1945, fascism and national socialism were completely discredited. Uh, then uh, in 1989, 1991, communism was completely discredited. So what remains is Western-style uh, liberalism. And uh, he says, well, that's the end of ideology because now we have tried everything and this is the system that has survived. 
Well, as many uh, people already um, uh, signaled, this is a very simplistic theory, and you can see that, first of all, there are still many uh, alternatives to Western uh, liberalism, not only in terms of uh, fundamentalist Islam, but think, for instance, of China, which has this very, for us, maybe weird combination of communism and capitalism, and you can say a lot about uh, authoritarian structures, etc., in China, but in a sense, it's also a very uh, successful country at this point. At the same time, uh, you can see in many West European countries, in, and also the United States, that, let me put this carefully, uh, democracy is, in its traditional form, is being reconsidered and uh, not supported in a universal way as it was uh, some time ago. So I think uh, human history is maybe a little bit more complex uh, than Fukuyama would make it seem. And you can also argue that people tend to um, create their identity always in opposition to others or to other groups. So maybe that's something that will remain a, a source of conflict throughout world history. But then you specifically mentioned monuments, and I think that's actually an interesting case in point. Because after uh, the downfall of communism in the late 1980s, early 1990s, you see that in many of these East Bloc countries and also in the former Soviet republics, the old communist monuments uh, quite often were removed, especially uh, monuments of Lenin. But then they were replaced with new symbols of um, collectivism. And many of these symbols are actually very conservative and very nationalist. So people go back into history and uh, uh, Timur Lenk is now all of a sudden a symbol, symbolic figure in Uzbekistan. And uh, people go back and instead of getting rid of these very autocratic symbols of uh, dominance, of political power, they just replace them and change the ideology. Yeah, I thought one of the interesting things, too, as we speak about it, was remembering kind of the opening ceremony of the Sochi Games uh, a few years back now and sort of how they thought, rethought that period and, and, and presented it kind of in a artistic kind of demonstration to the rest of the world as an understanding of, you know, who they were during that particular period. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think that's one of the interesting uh, aspects of the politics of history, uh, so to speak, uh, that you can always reframe history in a way that serves your purpose. So for Putin, who, uh, and that is well known, thinks that uh, the disintegration of uh, the Soviet Union was one of the most important tragedies of national history. For him, it's not important to stress uh, the communist aspect of the Soviet Union, in which he is not interested, but it's all about the grandeur and the grandeur and the national, national um, uh, identity behind it. And that is why for Putin, it doesn't even make sense to make a clear distinction between the Tsarist period and uh, the communist period. It's all part of this bigger Russian tradition, this bigger Russian story that he wants to continue in terms of uh, Russian greatness. I want to thank you very much for taking the time today to speak with us. And as always, we're going to have uh, links to the museum's website on our page. 
I want to, as always, thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for helping to make this interview possible. Your donations helped us to purchase the equipment that helped to make this episode happen. We hope to feature some more Cold War sites and museums in future episodes. Additionally, we have some more interview episodes in the works as well. For those of you who prefer the narrative to these interview episodes, rest content. We have a number of great episodes in the works about post-war Japan and the Civil War in China. As always, if you want to check out the pictures for this episode, have questions, or want to donate to the podcast, our website is www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. As always, while there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.